2: Hello, thanks for tuning in. Before we get started, two very quick things. Number one, these episodes can be long, they are long, so every so often you'll hear a little bit of a jingle in the speech telling you it's a good time to pause and have a break if you're about to arrive at work, need a cup of tea, or just fancy spreading out your listening of the week. Number two, if you want to help support the podcast, go to unitedthroughtime.com forward slash support. Cheers, on with the show. United Through Time and episode 6, Billy Meredith. The final of our pre-war figures, we're considering the life of Meredith, football's first superstar. A teetotaler, a publican, a two-time City player and still one of the greats of Manchester United. This is United Through Time. We ended part one with Billy having just joined Manchester United at the end of 1906. The great war is to start in only eight years' time. But those years were to be just as eventful as his decade or so at Manchester City. Toothpicks, trophies, stones thrown in Budapest, drunk goat, a match-fixing scandal, a new football club, chatting to the Busby Babes and much, much more. So let's dive in. Billy Meredith made his debut for Manchester United on New Year's Day 1907. His suspension from football had finally come to an end after 18 months. His debut was a great success and his presence in the United team changed everything for the Reds. More on that shortly, but we're going to jump forward just a little before we come back to the football on the pitch. On December 2nd, 1907, exactly 11 months and one day after his debut, Meredith chaired the first ever meeting of the Association Football Players and Trainers Union, the AFPTU more commonly known as the Players' Union and later renamed to the PFA. Why was it Billy Meredith, this boy from Turk, this brilliant winger, who decided to spearhead a movement and organisation that has since consistently been at the very forefront of change in football? Reason one, his childhood in Cherk. Meredith worked down the pits from the age of 12. The mining community is perhaps more linked with trade unions than any other industry in Great Britain. By the age of 20, Meredith had been involved with several strikes at his workplace and he spent those adolescent years soaking up the influence of his father and the other men at the mine. In 1893, for example, a 25% pay cut was announced and it led to a long struggle between the workers and their employers. The union set up soup kitchens in Wrexham to feed the temporarily unemployed men. Relief organisations delivered bread and potatoes to miners' wives. People like Billy's mother, Jane. Trade unionism was in his
3: blood,
4: really. Well, I think his background certainly helped to to instill a sort of anger and an in, an intolerance, if you like, uh, a sort of world he had to to, to work in, which was a pretty grubby one, the professional football. It, it, it was and still is a very difficult world to, to keep, what's the word, keep your standards up? I don't know.
2: Reason number two, the deaths of three men close to Billy's heart. In 1902, two men linked with Mancunian football died, both of whom were good friends of Billy Meredith. Jimmy Ross died in June 1902. We spoke about that in part one. His illness was not football-related, but when he died at the age of 36, despite being a very successful player and part of the Preston North End Invincibles team, Jimmy's wife and child were left destitute. There was no official support system, not from any club, organisation or the Football Association. It was only the generous donations from strangers and friends that kept the Ross family going. Billy was appalled. He was similarly saddened by the death of Di Jones in the same year. Jones was a Welshman like Billy and seven years his senior, Both had been trained by Thomas E. Cook back in Cherk in North Wales. They knew each other well and Jones, like Billy Meredith, had played for Cherk, Newton Heath and Manchester City. It was only two months after Ross had died that Di Jones cut his knee on a piece of glass while playing in a pre-season game for City. The wound became infected and he was dead within a fortnight. City insisted there had been no glass on the pitch. They basically blamed Di Jones for his own death. He had been told not to walk off the pitch, but did so limping the 180 yards to the ambulance. He had the wound cleaned and stitched up, but when home it had started to discharge, pus, grass, mud and everything else. Within a couple of days he couldn't eat without being anaesthetised with chloroform. He was soon dead. The coroner heard the cases from both sides and remarkably said, A
5: football clubs to supply a medical staff at the ground for every match?
2: Well, yes please. He exonerated Manchester City and Di Jones's death was declared an accident. As a result, his family received only £100 from a benefit match, and that was pretty much it. These were not isolated incidents. Not too long after Di Jones' death, Billy Meredith stocked his sports shop up with some new products, a new range of cleansing ointments to prevent a reoccurrence. The FA, on the other hand, did nothing. The third death that would be particularly impactful would be that of Tommy Blackstock, a good Scottish lad from Kirkcaldy who died while in action from Manchester United. He just dropped dead on the pitch. Once again, the coroner's verdict would lead to no compensation being paid. They said that Blackstock had died from heart problems, despite many witnesses, including Manchester United players, saying that Blackstock had just headed the heavy ball off the pitch when he collapsed and never took another breath. These three deaths, which represented a wider issue, inspired Meredith to demand support for bereaved families of footballers and better rights for footballers on and off the pitch. Reason number three for starting a union, the maximum wage. Players could only be paid £4 and 10 shillings a week. In the Northern League, there was no cap. In the Southern League, there was no cap. But in the Football League, there was. And while clubs raked in massive gate receipts of sometimes four-figure sums, the players were recompensed in measly fashion. In the mid-1890s, Meredith had been hesitant about becoming a professional footballer. He wanted to carry on working down the mines. He firmly believed that the more you paid a player, though, the more they would dedicate themselves and thus the better they would be. Mr
5: Meredith, what do you think was the secret to Manchester City's English Cup success? In my opinion, the fact that the club put aside the rule that no player should receive more than £4 a week. From 1902, I had been paid £6 a week and Livingston was paid 10 shillings more than that. No member of our team was paid less than I was. Altogether, the club paid in bonuses £654. The team delivered the goods and the club paid for the goods delivered.
2: Reason number four, the retain and transfer system. Not only were the players not paid very much, but they didn't get a choice about where they played. They were owned by their football clubs. And I do use the word owned because if you're in a situation where you can have your contract cancelled and then... Somebody who you've been employed for then refuses to allow you to move elsewhere. You are in essence owned and the word slavery was used in the 50s and 60s. And reason number five, a lack of justice and voice. Meredith had been accused of bribery only a couple of years previously. No one had been there to stick up for him, except for himself. City had ignored him in order to save themselves He had a voice because he was so famous, but would a player with a lesser reputation? Meredith wanted footballers to have a voice, to fight against injustices in the game, and a union would offer that. And the final reason, reason number six, was that he joined Manchester United. This helps to explain why Meredith started the players' union in the year that he did, because in 1907, Meredith was united with a collection of players who thought the same as him. Charlie Roberts was captain and key in the players' union. Roberts was a leader, a great player, and a believer in players' rights just like Meredith. Turnbull and Burgess, who had joined United like Meredith from Manchester City, they were the same and so too were Charlie Sagar, George Wall and many other players at United. Not only that, but the nature of Ernest Magnall's management, which was mainly fitness and good signings rather than tactics and training, meant a natural kind of leadership team had already formed at United with Meredith and Roberts at the heart of it.
4: Billy Meredith claimed they worked out their own ploys during hot pot suppers they attended at the Welshman's home.
2: As Ellen, Billy's wife, helped him to serve up these hot pot suppers, the boys would talk football, business, politics and eventually a players' union. And so on December the 2nd, 1907... Billy Meredith chaired the first meeting of the players' union. He had sent a letter around the country to football clubs inviting players to come and form a union, and that's what he did. Now, Back to the football on the pitch. As I said, Meredith's debut at Manchester United was a very satisfying occasion. He, Sandy Turnbull, Herbert Burgess, and Jimmy Bannister all played for the first time since their FA suspensions. And their opposition, Aston Villa, the club of the elite who had led to their bans in the first place. Sandy Turnbull scored in front of a bumper crowd, and Manchester was delighted. Their boys were back, although they were in red now, and Meredith was at the very
6: heart. Yeah, that, that certainly is the case. And there was a there was a swagger to it as well you know and United of course like uh, players like uh, Dennis Law and Cantona who Swagged around the field while well, Meredith did that as well and and he, and he did bring in the crowds I think I think the only player you can compare him to really is Stanley Matthews who also went on and played in his 40s and uh, you know crowds used to go just to see him and, and it was the same with the case of uh, Meredith uh, huge crowds uh, when, he, when he first played for United um, in 1907 uh, massive crowds went to see him. Uh, rather than the the other
2: players. While Meredith was setting up the union with his teammates, he had propelled his new club forward and they would soon be champions of England. John Harding does want to point out that there's not a great deal of evidence to suggest all City fans were delighted by the moves of their best players to Manchester United. But
4: The evidence that that, that fans all flocked in to see Meredith and thought he was wonderful and nobody was really concerned about who he was playing for is is a little bit... um... I don't want to put your wishful thinking, but there isn't a great deal of evidence to suggest that, that that was the case. Nevertheless,
2: from the moment Meredith arrived at United, things certainly changed.
7: And, of course, Meredith arrives at United and carries on where he left off. He's, he's, he's a major star, a major figure, and everybody loves him. And, and all of the stuff, all of this scandal, the way that it's perceived in the North, and, and certainly by the media in, in Manchester, was that the FA had really just gone out to destroy a young upstart football club and the belief was that if united became successful they'd do the same to them
2: in the spring only 4 or 5 months after his debut for united meredith enjoyed his first taste of international success with wales
6: the, um, uh, wales won the british championship for the first time they'd beaten ireland and scotland and then played england and the draw was enough to give them the championship but um, uh, Meredith was distraught in that game because uh, uh, with the scores level and late in the game, there was a clear handball, and uh, the referee, who happened to be English, didn't give the penalty, and so as a result, Wales didn't uh, win that match. He played 48 times for Wales, which is a huge number of games, really, when you think that there weren't any uh, matches against continental teams, but he was a, he was a regular for all that, period
2: his success with Wales meant a lot to him in the summer of 1907 six months before the start of the players union and on the back of his success with Wales Meredith captained one United team against the other the other captained by Charlie Roberts they were the two leaders although Roberts was the captain of the club that was for a pre-season practice match and Manchester United also played against City in a friendly cricket game it seems played at Fairfield Meredith got three wickets against the City team bowling well in the August heat United's start to the 1907-08 season was sensational. Whether it was the cricket or the confidence or the heat, who knows? Meredith scored a double away at Villa in a 4-1 win. United lost only twice before Christmas, as Billy Meredith scored ten times. They were a ridiculous nine points clear of second place Newcastle at Christmas. Nine points. In this time, it was only two points for a win and a point for a draw. So that kind of gap was simply unheard of. It was one of the finest runs of form English football i ever seen Jimmy Catton from the Athletic News went to watch United play and make his own judgment
5: over and over again I've bemoaned the practice of modern players in trying aerial football the united delighted me by passing all along the ground the ball was always rolling along as in a game of bowls and from man to man in the same side this is a puzzle of scientific football the United provide an object lesson to every team by so faithfully and artistically manoeuvring on the grass. Even the centre,
2: centres are now known as crosses,
5: was on the ground, and therefore the easier for shooting, my dears, say these crafty men.
2: Meredith and Sandy Turnbull's combination was superb. George Wall was a brilliant winger on the opposite side to Meredith, and Jimmy Turnbull was a threatening forward as well. United's back line of Duckworth, Robertson, and Bell was unpenetrable. They had the best goal-scoring record and the fewest goals conceded they were certain to win the title. Meredith's goal-scoring fell off as 1907 turned into 1908, and United's form did too. But despite a fall-off in form, they still won the league with a nine-point margin, even if they'd walked into their crown backwards. Meredith was absolutely central to United's success. Week after week, he was praised with the exuberance of genuine delight of those who watched him. After a game against Liverpool, one reporter said,
5: Famous Welshman, wheeled, dodged and sprinted and centred in a style that gave Bradley and Saul a terrible gruelling. On another
2: occasion it was,
5: The mastermind of Meredith is of course the side's greatest factor. Once more, Meredith was a star
2: artist on the field, his running and centering being immense.
3: And the interesting thing was, of course, Ernest Magnor, when he went to United, Ernest Magnor was building this very good team and it was a lot harder to um, stop Meredith. Uh, basically, it wasn't just about stopping Meredith. And, and the other interesting thing I read was that um, United at the time under Magnol didn't play what was the traditional hoof and hope game. It was very much about short passes, well, what, what, I think what they call the Scottish game, very short passes uh, on the kept it on the ground. So again, very much like, you know, Guardiola today. Another
2: Meredith in Excelsis as United beat Berry 2 1, and Meredith scored a delightful goal, controlling a powerful cross easily and then lashing it into the net, in off the left post. One of those really satisfying strikes. Just one more to end.
5: Meredith, undeniably, is the greatest forward of all time.
2: He did bring the crowds in, in Manchester and elsewhere, and as United played Woolwich Arsenal and Chelsea down in London, some locals began to fall in love with Manchester United because of Billy Meredith, and the first Cockney Reds began to emerge. In 1904, City won the Cup thanks to Meredith and come agonisingly close to the title. They were even closer in 1905 and then scandal struck. After 13 years as a professional footballer, Meredith, aged 33, was finally a title winner and missed only one game all season. It is just incredible. There is so much more to tell about Billy Meredith's career. We're only at the start of part two and we're only in 1908 now. He wouldn't retire for another 16 years and yet he's already 33 and finally with his first title. Most other players would have been thinking about packing it in and indeed many of them were, but not Billy Meredith. He headed off on a European tour with Manchester United as a reward for his hard work over the season. Now a title to break after winning the title you'd be very wrong two days after being crowned champions of England United rushed down to London to play Queen's Park Rangers in the charity shield Billy Meredith scored the only goal in a 1-1 draw poor weather harmed the gate receipts which of course went to charity but
5: those who stayed away missed one of the best games of the season
2: QPR went ahead Meredith equalised.
5: Bannister put over Meredith, the great Welsh outside right, and he got in a long shot, which just hit the upright and went across the other side of the net. The United thus equalised with one of those shots only seen once in a hundred matches, and one which perhaps no player but Billy Meredith could make. Shaw was in difficulty. He was right on the spot to clear, but the ball cannoning off the post, no goalie could anticipate its flight.
2: A replay would be needed despite the brilliant goal. That charity shield, held at Chelsea's brand-new Stamford Bridge Stadium, was on April the 27th. On April the 29th, two days later, Manchester United played a benefit match for Meredith's Players' Union. Meredith again scored the first goal and Roberts the last as United beat Newcastle 4-1 and raised some money for the Players' Union. A day later, United won the Manchester Cup for the first time since changing their name from Newton Heath. Jimmy Bannister scored the only goal in a 1-0 win against Berry. So in four days, United have played three games and they reached the end of April... Having played eight league games, a charity shield, a benefit match, and a Manchester Cup final, at least 11 games in a single month, Meredith played in 10 of those. He only missed one league game all season. He was an incredibly
3: fit footballer. He really believed in fitness and looking after himself. He was teetotal. Um, He he developed all these. He he ate well. He developed all these lotions and potions that that, that, to keep his muscles supple and. I'm sure that had some bearing on him having such uh, longevity, and even in this day and age, you know, where we have the best training diet, diet regimes imaginable, you know, the thought of a player playing at the top flight at 49 years old um, is incredible. You know, it just no one believe. You know, I don't think anyone could do it. And so, for a rest, they headed for a long
2: and arduous journey to the European continent.
7: Meredith was the first proper football star, certainly in Manchester. I would, I personally would argue nationwide he was the first proper football star.
2: And Meredith stardom wasn't restricted to the English game because of his cup-winning goal for City in 1904 and generally his status as an all-round brilliant football player. He was known across Europe as well. The teams whom Manchester United played in Europe basically prepared to stop Billy Meredith and no one else. Alec Bell, for example, one of the halfbacks, wrote back to the British newspapers during the tour. They relayed his message that
5: Three men are occasionally deputed to play the part of Hounds with Meredith as a fox, and often enough the trio have to acknowledge the defeat.
2: Three men marking Meredith. It's like Messi. That tells you everything you need to know about his talent and his importance to the team. He'd still produce some great play, but while he drew defensive away, Sandy Turnbull could find some more space or Harold House, Jimmy Bannister or George Wall or even Charlie Roberts from centre-half-back. Meredith thoroughly enjoyed his time on the continent. He would have liked the attention. One Budapest citizen was keen to get a memento of his and...
5: He approached him to buy the famous players' boots. A bargain was struck and, Meredith, shall I say reluctantly... Sold his boots for £2.15. and shillings.
2: Meredith wrote about the experience in later years.
5: In one match, we had an excited referee who ruled the game through the touchline. He never came inside the field of play at all, but dashed madly up and down the line. Some of us were laughing so hard we could not play. The players we met were, on the whole, a cheery sporting set. And they did their best to make us at home and to help us enjoy ourselves. In a game at Zurich, I actually had two players who never left me from start to finish. They would have followed me through the town. I had a great time with them. If you tell the players you are speaking to that you like his necktie, he would at once pull it off and hand it to you with a smile and a bow. How different the British are.
2: Meredith also explained the differences between the English teams and the Europeans.
5: Well referee, and it's the sole reason that the game out there is rough. Far too rough to allow for correct football. I believe it is a fact that the Slavia team at Prague and the Bohemian team at the same old city have not met for years. Do you know why? They dare not. This is a fact a feeling that there would assuredly be serious trouble. When these two rivals met.
2: It was in a game against Ferenc Varros in Budapest that Meredith came up against Imre Scholzer. Together they made an incredible 116 international appearances for Wales and Hungary in careers that totaled 48 years put together. It was the only time they shared a pitch. In 1909, Billy Meredith won the FA Cup for the second time in his career, and the story and the run it took to get there is filled with stories that tell more of football's history than just 1909. His cup campaign didn't get off to a great start, to be fair. He was sent off after kicking a Brighton and Albion player in his first match. It was his only sending off ever for Manchester United and in his career, but he wasn't given a red card. Red and yellow cards to show cautions and dismissals, didn't come into football until the 1970 World Cup Finals. Up to that point, referees could only indicate their decision through words and some kind of hand gesture, but it was never clear. For example, in the 1966 World Cup, referee Rudolf Kreitlein had given cautions to Bobby and Jack Charlton, and he'd also sent off Argentina's Antonio Rattin, who refused to leave the pitch for some time, misunderstanding. This was the quarter final at Wembley. England manager Alf Ramsey had to ask FIFA for some clarification. And British referee Ken Aston noticed this and realised that referees' decisions weren't particularly clear. And so he realised a colour-coding scheme would be helpful, based off of traffic lights, yellow for caution, red for dismissal. It would traverse language barriers and make it clearer for fans, players and coaches. An idea so ingrained and so clever that it seems remarkable anyone ever had to think of it. But they did and since these cards have been adopted by almost every other sport. So, Meredith was told to leave the pitch, but not shown a card of any sorts. The newspapers offered their sympathy to Billy, who had never been sent off before in his 14-year career. The referee told reporters that he sent Meredith off because he kicked Stewart, Brighton's left fullback, Harry Stafford, now a Manchester United director, having served a couple of years of ban for financial misconduct with the club, guided the referee away from the ground to safety as United supports reacted angrily. The papers dismissed the game as a truly terrible one.
5: It is not often that a genuine enthusiast of the game feels real pleasure at the fact that the
2: 90 minutes are ended, said the Athletic News opening line in an Alan Green-style rant. They did as most papers did, except that Meredith had received plenty of provocation as he was kicked up and down the pitch by the Brighton defenders. That is what every team did to try and deal with this mercurial Welsh winger.
3: Yeah, on poorer surfaces, and you'd be getting, you wouldn't get... Any protection from refs? Because I know um, Meredith was quoted as saying, this Matthews lad, he'd have got kicked off the park in my dear words to that effect.
2: It is a thousand pities that so great a player did not conquer his wrath, said the Athletic News. And so Meredith watched the final quarter of the game wrapped in an overcoat watching from the touchline. Someone
5: was always off the field, somebody was always hurt, the game was utterly one-sided, the football full of mistakes and altogether it was a thoroughly bad match.
2: Again, the athletic news didn't beat around the bush, did they? Meredith got the assist for the only goal, of course, before he left the pitch. He was suspended though for an entire month. The FA didn't beat around the bush either and so United were missing him when they played against Everton in the next round and then again for the next round. The FA were not for turning even when United tried to appeal the ban. And so Meredith missed game after game for United, two rounds of the cup and the international between Wales and Scotland at the start of March. United beat Everton 1-0 with another Harold House goal who'd also scored against Brighton and the excitement of the tie brought Manchester to its knees. At least 35,000 were inside the ground at Clayton cramped in and Several thousand
5: stood in the street outside listening to the cheering.
2: Such was the crush that, as the gates to the stadium were opened to let fans out, the rush caused The
5: substantial brick and stone walls in front of the houses to be pushed down and several people we're injured. A
2: 26 year old was knocked down and trampled on and taken to hospital. The same happened on the same day in another city, at Portsmouth, as one Portsmouth fan and two Southampton fans were taken to hospital with broken legs because of the crush. 80 years before Hillsborough, no lessons learned. The next round was eventful too, as United got very lucky, losing to Burnley in horrible snow with only 18 minutes left in the game. The match was called off by the referee, and United won the replayed fixture. More on that story in the last episode on Charlie Roberts. Meredith had come back in that game against Burnley, in the replay that is, as United prepared for cup ties in Lytham-Saint-Anne's or Cuddington, outside of Manchester in the greener areas of Lancashire. It was a great cup tie, the replayed event. Meredith and Roberts were both in fantastic form, and after 10 minutes, Roberts forced a save, heading powerfully from a perfectly placed Meredith corner. The pair, the two leaders of the Manchester United team, used to send hand signals to each other from corners talking about which tactic they'd use, which cross they'd send in, and most of Charlie Roberts' goals came from crosses from Billy Meredith. Meredith was soon brought down into the mud by the Burnley defenders, who were hacking him down, and he'd leave the pitch covered head-to-toe in dirt. Burnley did go in front, but United recovered well, and Meredith sent in cross after cross to tease the United forwards and keep the Burnley defenders on edge. It wasn't even one of his best games, but United reached their first cup semi-final, with plenty of praise for their Welsh winger. And it was there that United played Newcastle, two of the best teams in the country, facing off two of the favourites for the Cup as well. Newcastle also one of Manchester's strongest allies in terms of unionism. Both sets of players were keen supporters and founders of the players' union. Meredith suffered injury early on and didn't have a great game He was charged by McWilliam and caught his arm on one of the corner flags United won again thanks to another Harold House goal and Charlie Roberts was probably mad of the match At the end of the game both sets of players applauded each other and made a big deal in the press about the sportsmanship shown between the two teams both involved in the union and so United's final opponents were Bristol City and Billy Meredith was absolutely the star Everything about the final focused on him. Journalists interviewed him, wrote profiles of him, wrote throwback pieces to the 1904 FA Cup final in which he scored the winner for City. Newspapers printed cartoons of him scoring his goals on the way to the final. They did this to some extent for the whole team, but there's no doubt that the main focus was on Meredith and was enormous, just like it had been in 1904 for Manchester City.
3: Yeah, it, 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 it yeah it was unheard. I mean, the press are fairly you know love to build people up, don't they um, nowadays? But uh, yeah, I mean, and in the days where you didn't go watch, you didn't watch matches on TV, all your news came through the newspapers. Of course, um, uh, yeah, he, he was the one being being written about. Um, you yeah, know, there were a lot of well known players, but he he was the one that seemed to catch the eye more than most. As forwards tend to do, of course.
2: On the other hand, for some, his status as the best player in the country was so well entrenched that it only required a passing comment.
3: Meredith, as he has been for many seasons
5: in the past, is the finest outside right this year. Newcastle
2: captain Colin Veach wrote, and nothing more.
5: Meredith is not at all likely to lose his head. He has been through many fights as fierce, if
2: not fiercer, than any which is like to come his way. Another said, He controls the ball in a way little short of miraculous and does most bewildering things many a seemingly certain defeat as Meredith turned late victory. In the game itself, Meredith led United well. Roberts was captain through the middle, but the experience of Meredith on the wing and Sandy Turnbull at inside forward was one of the differences between United and Bristol City, both of whom had never reached the cup final before. Meredith's sports shop actually provided the kits for the final.
6: He had his own business, his sports shop, outside of the game, and um, the shirts... uh... United War when they won won the cup in 1909 uh, were supplied from his shop. A very smart looking white shirt with a with a red V, uh, and of course Meredith wore that shirt and uh, laid on the, the goal which brought the cup to United for the first time.
2: And he was in his best form. Sandy Turnbull scored a goal, and that meant it was a fantastic moment for Manchester, not just United. Meredith in 1904, Turnbull in 1909, five years apart and two players who themselves united Manchester as a footballing city. Tens of thousands went down from Lancashire to London to watch the game at the Crystal Palace sports ground, and as United returned home after celebrating in London, the Reds asked City director Albert Alexander to be a part of United's homecoming. He was a carriage company director and had done the same role with City back in 1904. As Gary James writes in his book, The Emergence of Footballing Cultures in Manchester, the general impression was that this was a continuation of Manchester's success, not specifically that of one team. This line from John Harding's book is excellent as well. The city of Manchester must have seemed a many-headed hydra. Manchester City had been chopped down, only for Manchester United to rise up in its place, twice as strong and successful, twice as popular. Meredith was the star. He, Robertson Turnbull, attracted the crowds, I think it can be said. On the unofficial match programme, Meredith's face appears on the front as the only image. And yet he wasn't a great talker. He'd mumble his words and look down at the floor every so often and he was teetotal so while Roberts and Turnbull dabbled in a couple of drinks in London's West End Meredith would have enjoyed himself without a drink watching his teammates' steps slowly get more wobbly while he played a prank here and there He did like a prank and it was usually him and Sandy Turnbull who would combine together to trick their teammates the Welshman and the Scot. On the morning after the cup was won for example the lid of the trophy was found in Sandy Turnbull's jacket pocket I reckon Meredith stuck it there the night before Cup of tea, anyone? Now's a good time to pause and come back to this episode later if you need to stop listening for whatever reason. But if you've not run out of listening time, then let's keep going. I hope you enjoy. The significance of the players' union is not in doubt. Without it, many of the rights that players enjoy and deserve today would not exist. Take Billy Meredith, for example. The year is 1909. He's just won his second FA Cup. He is, as the newspapers say, the greatest forward of all time, the most famous footballer in the country. A man so famous that Hungarians followed him down the streets of Budapest in 1908. But a year later, he's now 35. He spent a decade and a half playing professional football at the highest level, won multiple trophies and made a lot of money for the owners of Manchester City, Manchester United, cigarette brands, pubs, programme sellers, everyone involved in football. Yet he went bankrupt in 1909. Not because he drank too much, smoked too much, or gambled too much, but for two reasons. The first being that his earnings had been restricted all of his life by the Football Association's maximum wage. Though he had been paid more than the maximum wage for most of his career, under the table, it was still an anchoring point that held things back. And the second reason was that in June 1909, just two months after winning the FA Cup, the sports shop that he part-owned that provided the kits for the FA Cup final went up in flames, literally, not metaphorically, The £500 that Meredith had suspiciously received to join Manchester United in 1906 had all gone towards that shop, and further payments had been made from Manchester United to Meredith's sports shop to kind of get out of the way of the maximum wage of the Football Association. He had been trying to invent a new football in this shop and actually did so, but didn't get any of the earnings himself. The money he invested into that shop was all gone with the fire. So it was no surprise that Meredith would spend the rest of his life fighting for money but his example as one of the more well-off footballers as the most famous man in the country is worth noting. So the last we mentioned of the players' union was December 1907 when the union was founded by Meredith and his United teammates at the Imperial Hotel in Manchester. Things developed gradually at the start. You're about to hear not quite the definitive story, but a pretty comprehensive timeline of the extraordinary happenings of the Players' Union battle with the Football Association that I think is a a very important one. The seeds of squabble were being sown in 1908, just a month after the Players' Union had been founded. Clubs, players and the Football Association all agreed that the wage structure needed reviewing, but no one could agree on any of the details, and so nothing happened. 20 of the top clubs, interestingly, were briefly flirting with the idea of breaking away from the league so that they could have more flexibility in terms of the wages they paid. In August 1908, the Union opened new offices in St Peter's Square in Manchester just next to Billy Meredith's sports shop. Herbert Broomfield was appointed as full-time secretary, a role for which he would be paid a proper salary. In December, with the year since the Union had been founded, They held their first AGM where they announced their intentions once again. These were that they wanted no restrictions on any sort of earnings. They wanted players to be able to negotiate their own agreements and players to get a percentage of any transfer fee paid for them. The Athletic News responded by criticising them as the dreams of visionaries. They were right, they were visionaries. Not a bad thing though, as they said. The FA's response was pretty typical. One councillor objected to it because there was not
5: one word of loyalty
2: to the FA. as if the Football Association was some mythical institution to which one must be patriotic. It was in this December 1908 that the obvious chasm between the players' union, press and FA became clear. This councillor that I just mentioned, G.E. Sutcliffe, described the players as having inward greed and sent out the classic line we
5: were running football years before they knew anything about it.
2: In 1909, these tensions built up very quickly, partly because of a dream that Billy Meredith had, or claimed he had. He wrote a column in a newspaper saying he'd had a dream last night that the union had done successful strike action. Even this dream, a figment of Billy Meredith's imagination, panicked the league clubs, who were threatened by the union's desire to use the new Workmen's Compensation Act, which was a new thing in the early 1900s, which basically gave workers in England and Britain the right to compensation if they were injured in their jobs and thus could no longer do them. Seems fair enough. The clubs didn't want players to do this, effectively saying that footballers had no right to use the laws that apply to the rest of the country. And the official response of the players' union was,
5: We are not convinced that we are expected to regard seriously the opinion that a footballer forfeits a common legal right on entering a professional agreement with a football club.
2: You can almost hear them laughing as they wrote it. And they were treated like slaves. It had become a struggle between masters and slaves. And the Football Association knew that they had the power. Their rape and pillage of Manchester City in 1906 set a precedent. They told the league clubs that they would overlook any financial misdemeanours or mismanagement that clubs or officials may have committed, as long as those same clubs aligned themselves with the Football Association and thus against the Players' Union. It was a game-changer. They took away the threat of Meredith repeating what he had done with City in 1906, when he had revealed all of their misdemeanours in the press. In reaction to this, the Players' Union knew they needed the help of something bigger, a greater force. Previously, they had the quiet support of clubs, but no longer. The FA had stopped that, and so instead they looked to the GFTU, the General Federation of Trade Unions, founded in 1899 after 40 or 50 years of gradual development of unionism in Britain in the 19th century. It still exists today. On March the 31st, the Union Secretary, the Players' Union, that is Herbert Broomfield, He went down to London. He met with representatives of the GFTU, the big organisation. The newspapers went mad, almost as if they had been personally attacked. They claimed that the union was preparing to strike and do so in the England-Scotland international game coming up. Bear in mind, this was, at the time, the most important match by far in the football calendar, probably more so than the FA Cup final. J.J. Bentley, a United man, but more importantly, he was United's chairman, but more importantly was a a football association man, an establishment man, wrote,
5: This cannot be too strongly condemned. The union are making the pace too hot to last. They will have their knuckles wrapped.
2: The GFTU, though, were interviewed and said the players' union would not be striking, contrary to newspaper reports. The press in the FA had convinced everyone across the country that the matter at hand was not workers' rights but loyalty to the country somehow. They presented it as an issue of loyalty to the FA and thus to the king and the country. It was a simplistic but effective message, even if it was pretty dishonest. It was the stalwart Englishman against the glamorous, greedy rebels of Manchester United. And in the face of this message, the union backtracked. They said they wouldn't make a decision on joining the GFTU until August, thus trying to take themselves out of the news a bit and do their work behind closed doors rather than in public. Billy Meredith couldn't wait, though. He was depicted as Guy Fawkes in a newspaper cartoon holding gunpowder underneath the FA and the league. And in late April, he, with the help of players from six other clubs, drew up a resolution that said,
5: The union become affiliated at once with the GFTU and that the following rule be inserted in the minutes of the players' union. That if the management committee finds it necessary at any time to withdraw from their employment such members be paid the sum of £1 until
2: they resume their occupation. It basically made clear that a strike was on the cards. And it was at this point as well that the union started using the Workmen's Compensation Act that I mentioned a few minutes ago at actually using it, not just threatening to. They took Reading Football Club to court in pursuance of unpaid wages, claiming that the FA had no rule dealing with the same. The FA and the club saw this as a direct challenge to their authority, and so they moved decisively with the power... And without any fear, they announced that all players would have their registrations revoked and thus not be able to play professional football unless they resigned their memberships from the players' union. And just to make themselves clear, they suspended the union secretary, Herbert Broomfield, and the chairman, main man, in preparation, showing that they were indeed very serious. Charlie Roberts, the United captain, wrote to his fellow players after talking with Billy Meredith, and they sent out together a memo to call a meeting of the players' union. They agreed there that they would stick with their membership of the union, whereas most footballers resigned in fear. Roberts and Marys looked to their fellow players and their deference to the FA and did so scornfully. And other players who supported the union said that they would resign from the union until September so they wouldn't be banned and they could be paid over the summer. And then they would rejoin the union when the season began. Um, a slightly, a slightly different tactic.
5: I thought about doing the same.
2: Charlie Roberts wrote,
5: but I ultimately decided to have no
2: underhand work. The whole United team were therefore suspended.
5: I'm a news agent in Manchester,
2: Charlie said, and he discovered he had been suspended via the papers that arrived at his shop.
5: And when the evening papers arrived that day, the posters read something like this: The whole of the English Cup winger suspended. Sindai, Manchester United without a team.
2: Leading figures aside from the FA now describe the United players as greedy, self-interested, unsportsmen, anything you can think of. The Athletic News, for example, constantly published and wrote things against the United players' tactics, including...
5: The conditions of football as an employment, as compared with the ordinary workmen, are widely divergent. Football is not a trading concern, but a sport. The FA has the moral side of the case as its strong handle and the players' union, inspired by the bitter sentiment of Herbert Broomfield's circular, is already handicapped.
2: And this was June. Meredith's shop had just been set on fire. It can hardly have been a pleasant time for the Welshman. He was in a financial mess and to make matters worse, he had no wage coming in. But still, the Football Association knew that they couldn't try to bribe him. This was Billy Meredith, a man who had fought against the establishment throughout his career, and so they tried to bribe Charlie Roberts instead. They told Roberts that he would be given a benefit match of £1,000 instead of £500 if he resigned from the union, doubling his money. Roberts refused, even though with that money, he could have bought a good few houses. And so United's players remained resolutely in defiance. Part of the reason that the union's bid was eventually somewhat successful at least was that the United reserve players, not just the first team players, stayed with the players' union. And part of the reason that they stayed with the union was Billy Meredith. He was the... The greatest footballer of the era and thus if he was telling them what to do they would probably fall in line with it and it was meredith and roberts inspiration that meant that united stayed resolutely as members of the players union and thus the fight was continued and in august a couple of newcastle and everton players joined the union again and so the football association were forced to act meetings were held constantly meredith and roberts were outcasts as the famous picture shows They were training at the Fallowfield Athletic Ground, a privilege for which they paid £5 a week. Newcastle, Everton, Oldham, Liverpool and Sunderland players had now rejoined because of Billy Meredith's lead. One of the strange things about this incredible summer is that the Football Association refused to sanction back pay to the United players who had been banned all summer. It was a minor, minor matter kind of, but a meeting ending one on a couple of occasions. And Meredith thought this was a way for the football associations to kind of get themselves out of a deal that they didn't ever really want to do.
5: As a matter of fact, I believe that the FA, believing that they would have the clubs with them, did not want a settlement. There is no doubt in my mind that the FA and the clubs believe that if put to the test, the players would not fight. And it is not half a test that the players have to go through. The club officials are working for the FA all the time. The players are talked to unceasingly, invited to dinners, all that kind of thing. It needs strong men to stand by the union under such circumstances. But I hope to see the players prove their worth to the public and earn the respect of all who like to see men fight.
2: In late August, the FA went behind the backs of the union and organised a meeting with all professional players, except those at the very top of the players' union, so Billy Meredith and Charlie Roberts were not allowed into the Grand Hotel in Birmingham.
7: During uh, our discussion (coughs) this week, there has been a good deal of talk about the purpose of this conference, uh, and uh, I shall have something to say about this, if I may, a little later on.
2: Colin Veach of Newcastle was a union member and a big supporter of the union, but he was at the meeting. As things descended into chaos, he told the FA that the suspended men of Manchester United would accept any agreement reached with the FA as long as the union was allowed to remain independent and free to act on its members' behalf. He said the question of the back pay could be settled at a later date, and it seems likely that he hadn't consulted with Meredith Robert Seyal before making this speech. And Thus, the meeting was a bizarre affair and chaotic. With this speech, the players' union lost their bargaining chip. The possibility of ending the season had passed, and Herbert Broomfield expected that the FA were ready to accept the union as long as they didn't join the General Federation of Trade Unions and therefore would never strike. For Meredith, Broomfield and Roberts, it was no victory at all. A day after the season had started, Herbert Broomfield wrote to a friend,
5: Thank you very much for your congratulations. I scarcely know where I am today. I seem unable to breathe. I'm not overjoyed, although everyone else seems satisfied, because there is something sad about the whole business. To think that athletes should be so devoured of moral courage is not a pleasing thought, and if you knew my experience the afternoon of the conference, you would feel as
2: I do. Meredith said, interviewed a day later in the Socialist Clarion newspaper, What's the good of belonging to a
5: union if one fetters one's hands like that?
2: The United Men felt betrayed. The FA continued their propaganda against the union, using this idea that football was somehow different. Really, whether the players' union was associated to the General Federation Trade Union or the Trade Union Congress, it shouldn't have mattered because the law of the land said that people could strike and the FA didn't agree. The players were being asked to admit that football was, for some reason, different. In late October, the players finally accepted to have a vote on membership of the GFTU and the members of the union voted decisively against. Meredith and Roberts were dismayed. Meredith actually missed the first four games of the season, but returned in mid-September and eventually re-signed a proper contract to Manchester United at the end of the month. But he didn't get his back pay for months. I think at this time it's worth discussing the, the how Billy Meredith was full of contradictions. He was a man who uh, fought passionately for players' rights and yet always sought everything for himself. He could be both very selfless and very selfish and he was a teetotaler, but as you'll we'll see later, he became a publican. Here's a couple of our, our guests, Colin Savage first and then John Harding, on these contradictions that kind of made Billy Meredith the man he was, this, this famous footballer, but also a somewhat shy and, and mumbled speaker.
3: There was a funny kind of incongruity, really, because he was out for all he could get. Despite being a, a trade unionist and looking at the players' union, he had this firm belief that players should be played what they're worth, and he was, again, firmly of the belief that he was worth more than, far more than others because he was better than others. So um, he was, <laughs> despite being a, you know, having this union type, trade union type uh, mentality, uh, he, he was always on the lookout for himself to a large degree.
4: Uh, there's a lot of contradictions about him. Um, the, the, I suppose you, it, it's hard to go back and, and, and work out how somebody might think in those days. That I think he was an insecure man in many ways because the, the money side of his life was never a, a, a particularly um, happy one. You know, he didn't seem to be able to make money or invest very well. And being paid to play was something that was very crucial to him. Uh, but also fairness, you know, the idea that... Um, he wasn't getting the money that he thought he should get because uh, uh, one goes back and forth with him. He wasn't necessarily a, a loud-mouthed person, but he certainly had an idea of his own importance uh, and his own self-esteem as it were, which I think f- fueled his anger sometimes when w- w- with relationship to the way players were treated back then. Um, but yeah, he was brought up in a strictly teetotal atmosphere, and yet he was a publican for most of his life, which... Uh, Sort of sums up the the contradictions, if you like.
2: If you're about to arrive at work, just about to get home, or need to stop listening for whatever reason, now is a good time to pause because we're at the end of a section. If you are going to carry on listening, then don't worry about this, keep enjoying the show. George Wall finished as United's top goalscorer in the 1909-10 season. It was a campaign which had started in such enormous controversy, but it ended with very little fuss. Meredith didn't score until January the 22nd at all. United didn't have a great season. It's an interesting point, this, because at Manchester City, Meredith was as good a goalscorer as anyone in the country. Quite literally, he finished as the top goalscorer for his club and was always in the top three or four in the league too. He ended up with five goals by the end of April 1910, and that represented actually a decent scoring tally for him at United. Compare that with the 30 he got in 1899 at City. It was certainly a very different style of playing. One reason, I think, is that by the time Meredith joined United, he was the country's best winger, and there was no question of playing him anywhere else. At City, though, they had dabbled with the idea of pushing him centrally, and although Billy would basically refuse and just play on the wing anyway, it might have made a small difference to his starting position on the pitch and therefore his ability to score goals. And perhaps the presence of Harold House, a great inside right at United, changed Billy's role a bit as well. House scored 18 goals in 1908-09 and more in the next three seasons. And I think his knack for goal meant Billy kind of had to do less. Or maybe just the slight loss of speed in his mid to late 30s was leading to him sticking to the touchline more. Still, no matter where he played, he kept chewing his lucky mascot, a toothpick.
4: Yeah, yeah, it was a, a trademark. It's sort of a. I think they used to sell toothpicks as well that, that had yeah. merited images uh, on the packages. It was a sort of early form of um, commercialism, but uh, yeah, it was a, a characteristic that, that the cartoonists love to, to, to ha- latch onto. And um, it's a, it, yes, it, it sort of you almost feel as though he didn't have. If he didn't have a toothpick in his in his mouth when he ran out to play, then people would have been disappointed. But uh, I like the connection though with the, the fact that it began with him being a miner and, uh, and the fact that he used to sort of, uh, you know, chew tobacco or chew a sort of form of um, tobacco that was probably a bit inconvenient and unhygienic. And the toothpicks were uh, substituted, but uh, form a concentration. But I also think it was to do with a sort of rather, what's the word? He wasn't a, a, a sort of a flamboyant character. He was pragmatic. And the idea of somebody sort of sitting chewing on a toothpick, you get this impression that he's a bit laid back. And I like that impression, that, that, that he, wasn't, uh, he wasn't sort of a sort of all action sort of running up and down 100 miles an hour type of player, although he was fast. Um, but the toothpick sort of summed him up in terms of his character, I think, as, as much as anything else. So it was a bit of a bit of a godsend for, for cartoonists, as you say.
2: In February 1910, United moved into Old Trafford. It was clearly a massive move for everyone involved with the club, particularly the supporters who now have to trek all the way across town to John Henry Davies' lavish new home. But for Billy Meredith, it's worth remembering the conditions he had first had in Mancunian football. He'd arrived at City in 1895. City had been playing at Hyde Road, a stadium then, without any dressing rooms. Meredith, for his first year at least at City, would get changed in a nearby pub, the Hyde Road Hotel. The same was true at nearby Newton Heath in the same period. The players would get changed in a pub and then after matches go to Father Samuel Bird's for his hot pot or potato pie. After a year at City, Meredith got the privilege of a club with dressing rooms. And at United, by the time he arrived in 1907, they did have dressing rooms, but a player often had to bring his own hammer and nail to hang up his clothes. Old Trafford was, without a doubt, a complete other world. It had everything. Tea rooms, restaurants, lifts, games rooms, gyms, plunge baths. It was the height of luxury. Near the end of the 1910 season, though, United's finances were exposed to the public. An FA commission led by Thomas Hindle, who had so viciously torn apart Manchester City, raised some queries with the Manchester United board. John Henry Davies, the commission said, was far too powerful. Manchester United was not actually a continuation of the old Newton East club, but simply John Henry Davies' club, they said. He ran it, pumped money into it and shows who worked for it. The FA weren't happy with this, although it was true. And they weren't happy with many other things either, including the fact that Davies, via the United, had given £598 to Millwood and Meredith, the sports shop partners, in March 1907. Davies, you see, would often top up Meredith's funds with an investment into his sports shop, rather than having to pay him over the maximum wage. Jack Picken scored four goals on the final day of the season, a 4-1 home win against Middlesbrough. Picken was a less obviously brilliant player than Harold House, who he shared the inside right duties with, but he partnered with Billy Meredith very well. While House was an individual in his own right who tore down on goal and did little water carrying, Picken was a good goal scorer, a fine inside right and would do the dirty work to help Meredith be at his best, and so Billy liked playing with him. and House. Not quite so much. United finished fifth in this season.
5: Billy Meredith is sort of a goliath in the eyes of football enthusiasts.
2: One newspaper wrote to Brown this time. The man himself said,
5: I sometimes wonder why on earth referees don't speak to players who make attempts to catch me on the knees and ankles. They seem to think I'm a special sort of person who ought to be fouled. Once recently, a player kicked me in the knee and I asked the official in charge of the match if he didn't think it was a case of dangerous play. And the answer was no.
2: Age 36 now, Meredith was still a significant thorn in the sides of the best half-backs in England. He was, it can probably be said at this point, not the best player in the country anymore. His style of play, for example, was very different to that of George Wall on the other wing for United. Wall was more direct. He was 11 years Billy's younger, so it's not surprising. But as Manchester United lifted a second title at their new home of Old Trafford, Meredith was once again a crucial part. He played 38 games in total, missing only three league games and playing more than anyone in the United team except George Stacey. He scored five goals and assisted tens of them. Enoch West was his new target up front. Turnbull, Wall, West, House and Meredith. A formidable front line comparable to Rooney, Ronaldo, Tevez. And this time United won 22 games out of their 38. After a brilliant run of victories from January until March, which kind of cemented United's status as title challengers, Meredith scored a couple of goals in those. But after that, United stumbled a little and let Aston Villa back into the race for the title. At Ayrson Park in one match, there was much talk of Meredith's latest skill. He was...
5: Up to all tricks of the trade.
2: And at one point, a reporter seemed to write with a gasp... He had to rely on a combination with Duckworth by means of a backheel pass.
3: I often compare him to... He was the Cristiano Ronaldo of those days. You know, he kept himself very fit. He obviously played played well to a to a to a decent age. I mean, how old was Ronaldo After 35, thirty five, thirty six? I'm not sure. Uh, he scored. He wasn't just a winger. He scored goals as well. He scored records, something like one goal every three games in his first or second spell at City. I can't remember. So, so he scored plenty of goals as well. He he was quick. He was skillful, and I think he had to be reasonably strong to survive the battering he got. And again, again, yeah, something Cristiano Ronaldo is used to, you know, being targeted and uh, a little bit. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think he, you know, he was the first superstar, yeah, the first football superstar. And I think there's so many parallels between him and Ronaldo. Except Ronaldo never played for City, of course, but he played for United. But uh, I, I think there were so many parallels. You know, he was just such a, a character.
2: A miserable Easter weekend saw United draw with both Sheffield sides and Villa get a couple of wins. That set up what should have been a completely enthralling title decider at Villa Park. It was United's second-last game of the season and Villa's third from last. And whoever won would probably Win the title. And Aston Villa did. And Meredith had a bit of a shocker actually. He was out of sorts and looked it on the pitch, muttering to himself as he lost possession or misplaced a centre. Just before Villa's fourth goal, he got a bad knock to the throat. The trainer came on to give him some attention, but he was seen throwing up on the side of the pitch with fans assuming he had swallowed his famous toothpick. Needless to say, he discarded of that particular toothpick, even though he hadn't actually swallowed it, and he had little impact on the rest of the game, playing with a bruised larynx which he occasionally rubbed to ease the pain. The defeat left United in a tricky situation. Most felt that they had deserved to become champions, But as things stood, they were on the brink of missing out by a point or two. Charlie Roberts, George Wall and George Stacey had all picked up injuries in the last couple of weeks of the season and it was that which had led to United's drop in form.
5: We've had some exciting finishes in the past,
2: the papers wrote. But it had been 12 years since a title had been decided on the last day of the season and now it would be because Aston Villa went to Liverpool knowing that they just needed to draw to win the league. United hosted Sunderland at Old Trafford, knowing that they needed a win and a bit of a hand from the boys at Anfield Road. Things got off to a bad start when Sunderland opened the scoring at Old Trafford in front of a relatively small crowd in Stretford. United were without captain Charlie Roberts and Hofton, Bell and Wall, and Sunderland were a good team. They had been the third side competing for the title, up until mid-March when they dropped out of the race. Sandy Turnbull equalised for United, Knocker West scored another two, and United knew they were en route to completing their side of the bargain. Meredith was in fine form, getting at least three of the assists, but possibly four or five, in what ended up as an emphatic 5-1 victory for United. Meredith made the run that helped house score United fourth just after half-time and then sent in a cross for Turnbull to finish for the fifth. The five goals scored by United were important, actually. They meant that even if Villa drew, United would be champions on goal difference, something that the papers hadn't anticipated before because they didn't expect United to score five against this Sunderland team. But the United team had to wait 15 minutes. The news coming from Anfield was positive, but nothing was confirmed yet. Benny Meredith sat in a plunge bath in the United dressing room, aged 36, waiting for confirmation to see if he'd won his second title. As it happened, Liverpool had run away with it at Anfield and won, beaten Villa. And so when the telegram came through, the supporters waiting outside the main stand at Old Trafford erupted into some. It does amaze me that that's the same forecourt on which we now tread when we go to United games. But those fans cheered outside for Manchester United's second title all those years ago. One slightly drunk man came into the dressing room to congratulate the players. Now, this is slightly different from these days. And this drunk man fell into the bath and walked home in a player's kit that they'd lent him, dripping from head to toe, but with a beaming smile stretched across his face. United were champions again, and Meredith, aged 36, had his second title. With another title, the curtain came down on Manchester United's first great team. In 1912, Ernest Magnell, United's great manager, went over to manage Manchester City. And United's finances were getting worse and worse, they really were. But nevertheless, Billy Meredith finally got the benefit he had always craved. He had been trying for years. In 1904, he had been promised a benefit match by City. And the scandal meant that that had been cancelled. He got money when he signed for United, but by 1912 he was 37 years old and without any kind of savings despite a long career at the very top of his field. And so he pestered the United board again and again. They had moved into this £60,000 stadium, hadn't they? So could they not submit to his demands? In truth, the United board did want to give Billy Meredith his benefit, but it was the organisational points that were a little tricky. In the end, it turned out to be a magnificent day, almost like a cup final. Manchester came together as one city to pay tribute to Meredith, the adopted Mancunian. Plenty of Welsh families made the trip to Manchester too, making it properly feel like a carnival atmosphere. Everyone went all in.
5: Manchester was to be canvassed for help and depots were established for the sale of tickets
2: United's opposition on the day would of course be Manchester City it was the first derby of the 1912-13 season now testimonials in these days are kind of organised events against other teams in summer but in these days you chose a match a league match or a cup match and from that match you took your your takings your benefits and this was the City game Ernest Magnol's last match as United manager before he joined um, yes City yeah that's right more on that story in our Magno episode, but for Meredith, despite a defeat to City in a one goal game, it was a very nice influx of cash. £1,400 was generated from the United game, and support really did come from all over. The Irish FA, for example, sent for a thousand tickets, and the Welsh FA established a shilling fund and offered up two trial matches to be for Meredith's benefit as well. No one had ever had three benefit matches at once before, but this was Billy Meredith. One letter came from Brazil, where Charlie Williams, who had shared a benefit with Meredith back in 1898 at City, was training for the Rio Grande del Sol, according to John Harding. Others from closer to home got involved too, and celebrities were all over the place. City's former directors, who had signed Meredith from Cherk, were in attendance, as well as many famous Chirk men, including Meredith brothers, Sam, the player, and Elias, the railway worker, who had taken Billy to see the Preston Invincibles back when he was a young teenager. And, of course, Thomas E. Thomas, the brilliant coach and schoolmaster who inspired a generation of Chirk boys to go into professional football. Jimmy Caton wrote...
5: There were celebrities in the seats of the mighty and humble folk on the spacious terraces, but they all met to pay that tribute to a man of wonderful skill. In every clime where football is played, either as recreation or as a sport that has to pay its way, the name of Meredith is just as much a household name as that of WG Grace.
2: The programme said,
5: The pain of the football commentator cannot do justice to the football ingenious of Meredith. Had he lived in earlier years, he would have been the subject of an epic poem and been immortalised with Achilles, Roland, and the Knights of the Round Table. This is a more prosaic age, and we sit silent and watch with enthusiasm the weaver of football spells, the wizard who is as fleet and whose heart is as buoyant as in that way back day in 1894 when he flashed in the English football, destined to successfully challenge comparison with the greatest of outside rights, has gone before.
2: And so, in total, Meredith would have got nearer to £2,000 from his benefit. Matches, around 180 grand in today's money, which is, of course, not so enormous compared to player wages, but life changing for any normal man or woman. It was deserved, and Meredith felt it had been a long time coming. He worried about his finances. His businesses had never been a great success, and so, although he was incredibly professional, trained hard, didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't gamble, he was in a not too dissimilar situation to those who had been the opposite and thrown their money at alehouses all their careers. This changed things for a while at least, and Meredith was visibly satisfied. In John Harding's book, there's a quote from one Manchester reporter.
5: The first time in many years I saw William Meredith with a satisfied smile upon his face because he had at last achieved his ambition and atonement had been made for many grievous disappointments. Of a peculiar temperament, there's undoubtedly been reason for his lack of faith in mankind and things in general. After the FA stepped in and prevented his benefit at City, he has always been doubtful as to whether he would enjoy the benefit that would make him safe from wanting in his later years. He haunted the director's room at Manchester United until he got the date fixed, and it wasn't such an easy matter as some people might suppose, and even then he was always of the opinion that something would happen to prevent the match being played, and I don't think he would have been really surprised if someone had told him that the FA had suspended the league and no more matches had been played. Perhaps now Meredith has discovered he has more friends than he thought he had, and that the world is not such a
2: hard place after all. Unfortunately, Financial worries would never, ever leave Billy Meredith's mind. He spent the next eight years trying to get United to pay the full amount of his benefits and the next 30 arguing with United and City over one monetary thing or another. For the next
7: five, six years, including, you know, through the First World War, he continually says United's still owing the money that they've not paid him properly. And he's constantly moaning about that and constantly saying (laughs) they've not paid him uh, enough. And
2: Meredith's talent was now diminishing. He was almost in his fifth decade. If
5: he would only introduce a little more variety into his methods.
2: One writer said,
5: He naturally fails against defenders who resort to all manner of shabby tricks to prevent him from making progress. He could circumvent shady practices by parting with the ball quicker on receipt.
2: But Meredith had spent his whole career as a man with great ball control who could beat his half-back nine times out of ten and skin him. He wasn't going to change his old playing style because he kept getting fouled. He was too principled for that. Meredith's relationship with the United board worsened with each week. His frustration at the failure to be paid the full money from his benefit match was the crux of the matter, but he'd also started to be dropped a couple of times. He was annoyed by this while the selectors and directors were annoyed at how much power Billy Meredith had at the club. It's part of the reason that Ernest Magnell left United, where player power had apparently grown too large. In 1914, of course, war began and 40-year-old Billy Meredith was making headlines for his politics rather than his football once again. His great friend Charlie Roberts had left to join Oldham Athletic, where he enjoyed a nice swan song before falling ill and semi-retiring.
5: Britain has declared war on Germany.
2: Before we go on to the quite extraordinary scandal that perhaps needs another episode separate in itself, it's worth noting how Meredith and Roberts continued to work together during the war, despite the fact that Roberts had gone to Oldham. They played in charity matches, hosted benefit matches for local hospitals and did what they could to help the local community in Fallafield, Burnage, Gorton and Clayton. But official football continued until the end of the 1914-15 season, all as normal. And in 1915, Manchester United were about to be relegated. Their best players were old, Meredith, Turnbull and West. I mean, Meredith was really old, but the others were in their 30s as well and Jack Robson was the manager now, not JJ Bentley. He seemed a good fit for United, Jack Robson did, and at Middlesbrough, he was paid only £3 a week and declined to travel to away games so that he could save the club some money. He turned Borough from a Northern League side into a First Division club and he did well at Palace and then Brighton and then became United boss. The circumstances certainly weren't in his favour because United had their own financial problems, which which is probably part of the reason and he was made United boss. But Robson never got much done with the economics and the war and he resigned in October 1921 and died three months later from pneumonia. Anyway, with United on the brink of relegation and in the bottom three, they beat Liverpool 2-0 at home. Liverpool were in the middle of the table with little to play for and United won and this wasn't a result completely out of the question. But the crowd at Old Trafford booed at the end of the game. The people of Manchester felt they had been conned. They claimed the game was fixed. The FA investigated and banned Sandy Turnbull, Meredith's good mate and three other United players all for life. Meredith was not investigated, but four Liverpool players were all suspended for life as well. After United forward, Enoch West took the matter to court, the whole thing was heard in public. Meredith was questioned and he said, and so did the evidence to be fair, that he had not known about the matter and was not involved. But his United teammate, George Anderson, disagreed and said, I think that they all knew something about it before. Meredith denied this strongly and said he had in fact known nothing, but did realise something was off by half-time. He asked the goalkeeper, Beal, what was up and claimed he had been starved of the ball after half-time. The fix was that United would win 2-0, so they couldn't give Meredith the ball and risk that he would score another. Betting shops had paid huge amounts out on a 2-0 United win across the country. Either Meredith was not involved or he didn't care and let his teammates do what they wanted to. He was no doubt not totally in love with football at this point. Instead, he was focusing on a new pub he was managing, the Church Hotel. And when football suspended, Meredith used it as an opportunity to leave United, a very unhappy place at the time, and the club who he was still arguing with about his benefit money. So
7: much so that when World War I was on, he actually left United and joined City. And it's not often talked about this, but he left United and joined City, supposedly as a, as a coach. Um, City started paying him. And he played in some wartime games and then as soon as the war was over, he had to return back to United because United held his league registration. And then yeah. he went back to United. But even then he was still moaning, saying that, oh, they never paid me all of this, blah blah blah.
2: As Gary James says, Billy Meredith went to play for Manchester City again. After eleven years in the red of United, he put on the sky blue of City once more. He and United were still fighting about his benefit money while City won the up and had Ernest Magno in charge. Not a close friend of Meredith, but certainly someone he respected. He partly returned to City because of the pub that he now managed, the Church Hotel. John Henry Davies had given it to him to manage, but he'd made an error on that part because it was right next to City, at Hyde Road, and a long distance from United at Old Trafford. And so, with registrations paused during the war, Meredith signed up to join City again. Unfortunately, while Meredith played almost every week for City during the war, his good mate and the great centre-forward, Sandy Turnbull, died at the Battle of Arras. He'd signed up in 1916 and was dead within a few months. His body was never recovered. Billy, Charlie, Ernest Magnell, all the football men of Manchester, would have been distraught to find out the news as it filtered back from France. By the end of the war, Meredith was settled in its city, though still arguing with United, of course. He scored great goals, did some fine things on the right wing and provided a morale boost to anyone returning from France who saw him galloping down the right touchline once again, as if things were beautifully normal. Asked by one reporter in 1918 if he could play forever, Meredith gave a short answer, pulling his cap down over his eyes. I'm not done yet. We've got less than half an hour left, but if you need to take a break for whatever reason, this is probably a good moment to pause and come back later. Otherwise, carry on listening and enjoy the final few parts of the episode on Billy Meredith, where we talk about leaving United, a special night at Arsenal's Highbury Stadium with Wales and much more.
3: Meredith was um, one of his big platforms, not not just about unrestricted wages, which of course players now have not get criticised for. I'm sure he wouldn't be criticising them, was the kind of transfer system. So... In those days, clubs had the right to hang on to players' registrations even after the contract had expired. He played a bit for City during the war period when registration rules were relaxed. But after the war, when he wanted to leave United go back to City, it was very difficult for him to do so because um, United could just hold on to his registration as long as they wanted. And for a little while, he just drifted out of the game and eventually came back in playing for United, at which point they agreed to transfer him. But again, you know, the Bosman ruling w- would have been music to his ears, I suspect.
2: Meredith wanted to leave United. United didn't want to sell him. It wasn't the first and it wasn't the last time that Billy Meredith was involved in something altogether ugly in appearance. But United were a poor team and Meredith felt very much aggrieved at how he had been treated for a few years now. United offered him the maximum wage, but Meredith complained that the transfer fee they demanded for him was far too high. It was 1920, but Meredith was saying almost exactly the same thing, almost word for word, as he had a decade and a half earlier in 1906.
5: I maintain that it is the blackest injustice to place a price upon the head of a player for whom they paid no transfer fee.
2: On another day, he said,
5: I am still firmly of the opinion that the selling of players is a degrading business, and I have proved that, so far as I am concerned, I will not allow a price to be put upon my head. I would rather have ended my career as a footballer than allow any club to sell me even for a
2: packet of woodpines. United tried to make amends, but
5: Achilles still sulked in his
2: tent. He enjoyed playing for Wales still at least, and they finally beat England, once in an unofficial game, 2-1, and then a few months later, the long-awaited official victory for Wales over England was finally achieved in 1920. Meredith had sought this more than perhaps anything else in the sphere of football. It was to almost be his pinnacle.
4: The the idea of him being a Welshman seemed to be more important than and playing for other the clubs he was with, it, 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 he seemed to have more emotions when he played for Wales than, than perhaps when he played for City United.
6: Snow
2: had fallen heavily in Highbury over the weekend. As Billy Meredith awoke on Monday, March the fifteenth, he prepared himself for his final international match. It was an interesting set of lineups. England's eleven was the oldest side the FA had ever selected. It included 37-year-old Sam Hardy, the legendary goalkeeper who was now at Aston Villa. The average age of the side was 30, and the majority of the players were pre-war stars who were still the pick of the bunch. Well, the ones who had survived the war. Andy Ducat, for example, was making his fourth appearance for England. His third had come nine years and 348 days earlier. The same was true almost for Wales, who started with, of course, 45-year-old Billy Meredith, 37-year-old Lot Jones, and a whole host of 30-somethings. The average age of their line-up, in part thanks to Billy's presence, was 31 and a half. Meredith had two times the number of appearances for his country as any other man on the pitch. He played for Wales now 48 times, a record number and one which would not be beaten until Rod Thomas in the late 1970s. He remains, Billy, the oldest player England have ever come up against. And of course, Wales' oldest star too by um, two and a half thousand days. No one else has played in their 40s and Billy did it at 45. He was a fit man and as the Times wrote after the game...
5: A man 45 years of age showed wonderful pace at outside right, and by forcing a corner, he caused the English defence to show a weakness that eventually brought about the defeat of the side.
2: Highbury was a fantastic ground. It was the first time that the home of Arsenal had ever hosted an international game, and it was a very important one. Wales had drawn 2 2 in Belfast and then 1 1 against Scotland at Ninian Park. If they won, they would be British champions. 21,180 people trudged through the snow on early Monday afternoon. It began to turn to slush under their feet and the pitch was in a similar way. It had...
5: puddles plentifully distributed over the surface.
2: For the English, this was a game to win. Move on and then they would need to beat Scotland to be champions again. But it was not so easy. They did go ahead through Charlie Buchan after seven minutes, but Davies equalised for Wales and Richards put them in front before the break. Meredith's direct role in both goals was relatively small and his performance wasn't breathtaking. But as a 45-year-old, he remained a key cog in the Welsh team who thoroughly deserved to win.
5: England's might defied at Highbury,
2: said the Dundee Courier. The Evening Post said...
5: Every member of the side played a bold part in the victory None more so than the veteran Meredith
2: Who generally had Grimsdale guessing and pushing by his elusiveness Another said
5: The artist was still superb He
2: contributed a dazzling run which was greatly admired by the crowd
5: Meredith gave glimpses of one-time brilliance And despite his years it is doubtful if Wales possesses a player Who is worthy to step into his shoes
2: Meredith and his teammates jubilantly walked back to their dressing rooms The snowy water from the pitch no doubt numbing the ends of their toes despite their strong leather boots. And Billy cried. He wept with joy and relief and he did so unashamedly. His teammates congratulated him. He had seen the turn of the 19th century into 20th, two FA Cup wins, two league titles, a world war and much more and yet he'd never beaten England. And now... He had. The Globe held an interview with the great man.
5: Billy Meredith on
2: the Welsh victory. A memorable game.
5: I do not think the English football public will begrudge us our win. Bill Meredith, the captain of the victorious Welsh team, spoke to us in the dressing room after the memorable international game at Highbury yesterday. The veteran of half a hundred games for his country was wreathed in smiles. And no wonder. Let him explain in his own words. I have played for Wales in 51 matches. He said. 25 times against the English. And this is the first time that I've been on the winning side against England. It is my last season of international football. Do you wonder that I am pleased of whacking the old white shirts? We had a bit of luck, all right. There's no doubt about that. But our fellows, especially the defence, played with grit and determination. All the boys did magnificently. I do not wish to make any distinctions.
2: And he was an entertainer. With his final appearance for Wales marked by glory, Meredith said, upon some praise from some journalist,
5: Oh me? I'm an old man. Ought to be in the Cardiff Museum. But no spectator in the great crowd who saw the Welsh wizard trip down the touchline yesterday, turning the English defence into knots, will agree,
2: said the Globe. And after 14 reluctant appearances for Manchester United in the 1920 21 season, Meredith was done. Well, no, he was done at United. After 14 years with a three-year gap during the war, Meredith's era at Manchester United was over and it was for the best for him and for the club. But while Billy would enjoy three beautiful silver-haired years at City, United would do just as poorly without him as they did with the Welsh Wizard. In August 1921, United let Billy go back to Manchester City on a free transfer. He became player coach under Ernest Magnall, and on the 25th of the month, 35,000 fans packed into Hyde Road to watch Meredith make his second, or actually third really, debut for City. It was, to the day, 27 years on from his first ever game for the club and they beat Aston Villa 2-1.
5: Meredith's hair has become iron grey, but his footwork is as good and his figure as lithe as ever. And if he is a bit slower, his great experience enables him to nurse himself carefully and to call up at the critical moment his
2: old dash. Without Meredith, United were relegated. They won only eight games from 43 that season and statistically, it is the club's second worst season out of its entire 122-year history. But at City, Meredith played a number of games alongside Charlie Pringle. Charlie was his son-in-law after he'd got married to Billy's daughter Lily. Lily, like her sister Winnie, had been trained by Billy to be a good runner. She became a Cheshire sprint champion, and with her marriage to Charlie, the Meredith family would be a footballing one for many years to come. And Billy really was just a lover of football. Ernest Magna was City boss and he'd done well at the club. They finished second in the season before Meredith arrived and five points behind Champions Burnley in that year. They then finished 10th the next year, with Meredith playing 25 times out of 45 games. That, in truth, at the age of 48, was Billy's last real proper season of professional football. He wasn't done at City, but he never would play a full campaign again. It was an impressive season, though. He continued to be one of City's better players. In the last derby match at Hyde Road, he was the best man on the pitch, according to the Athletic News, who were, admittedly, a little enamoured, as we all are, by Billy Meredith.
5: The most skillful outside forward on the field, the man who showed the best ball control and who passed and kicked with the best judgement.
2: City finished 8th the next year, which was their final year at their Hyde Road Stadium. Ernest Magnall had moved United to Old Trafford in 1910 and now moved City to Main Road. He had a thing for South Manchester. Billy preferred the East, as you'll hear later. Anyway, Billy played only once in that season. His career seemed to be over. But the next year... Ernest Magnol shocked everyone when he started Meredith against Brighton in the FA Cup and we're not just talking a small shock here people laughed they said Magnol was off his rocker the Athletic News said
5: the city of Manchester took Shaw's breath and laughed in incredulous vein when it was announced that William Meredith was going to play
2: in fairness Meredith hadn't played a first team game for more than a year his only appearances had been in the Lancashire Cup and reserve games and he was almost 50 but Meredith was unperturbed he knew he was just as fit as ever he trained hard even when he didn't play and I think he partly did so because that was all he knew he was about to turn 50 and he had been doing the same routine for 30 years he played football he did it well he trained he trained again and repeat and so even if he wasn't playing for city after 1922 very much he worked hard he cared deeply about his fitness and it was a mixture i think of a desire to be healthy fit and just as good as he was when he was in his mid-20s and an inability to get out of a routine so ingrained it had always been the same when official training had stopped, Billy would either carry on by himself or go home, get some food and go straight back out, out the back of his house and do some more training until Ellen, his wife, called him in for dinner. So Billy was certainly not of the view that he couldn't play in the FA Cup. He may have been slightly surprised though.
5: This is a wonderful day for me, he
2: said before kick-off.
5: And I hope I will justify my selection. I think I will five feet feel fine.
2: A 5-1 win was vindication enough, especially when Billy scored his last ever goal in professional football. The game was actually filmed. Unfortunately... The cameraman decided he wanted to get on film a shock Brighton goal and so spent the game, stood by the City goalposts at the Goldstone ground and thus failed to capture 48-year-old Billy Meredith scoring his last goal in his last season. And he missed the four other goals too. Before the game, Billy had read telegrams sent in by adoring fans who remembered his greatness from before the war. Even if the new football generation hadn't seen him at his very best, many had and people were intrigued to see what he was still capable of. I imagine that for many football fans who had watched before the war when Meredith lifted the cup in 1904 and 1909, seeing his name on the team sheet again at Brighton in 1924 must have been something quite special. Meredith represented a bygone era, despite some success after the war, and his playing must have made it seem like, just for a moment, certain things had never happened. Friends and family hadn't died in France and never returned again. Sandy Turnbull hadn't been killed in a
5: it reads like a romance, but Billy Meredith is not made of ordinary stuff,
2: said the Topical Times. The
5: grey matter he has in his head belies his years.
2: He played in both of the games in the next round against Cardiff City at Main Road and Ninian Park, no doubt getting a great reception from the Welsh crowd in the replay as City won 1 nil there. In the Main Road game, 76,166 people came to watch Billy Meredith play. It is worth asking, I think, how good or bad Meredith was at this point. It would be no shame to be a little worse for wear at the age of 49. Having read the reports from this era, it seems there was an element of that. Meredith still had his talent, of course. He still had his fantastic ball control and understanding of the game. But as a 49-year-old, he had lost his pace and a bit of his strength too, and that did make a difference. And yet it does genuinely seem that Billy Meredith was the best player in his position for Manchester City at the time. He
5: was as useful as any of the Manchester forwards,
2: said the guardian of his performance at Main Road against Cardiff.
5: But it is a confession of weakness to play him.
2: Yes, I think that's probably true But it does not mean Meredith was bad Far from it, he surprised people time and time again At Brighton, at Main Road and then at Ninian Park against Cardiff The crowd was 50,000 And Meredith played the best he had done for years He was in his own country with both sets of fans Eager to see his talent And he put on a show He offered some exciting dribbles and good crosses in the first half And then in the second, he made the difference It really is extraordinary 49 years old
5: Meredith to his feet, as if it's on a string, he looks to his left, but chooses to move forward himself, he's left Blair, Rocky on his heels there, Meredith sprints forward, he's in space now, the centre goes in, Brow finishes Manchester City in front, 49 old Billy Meredith sets up the goal, and Brough runs over to the old veteran, the whole City team do a bitter blow to the home crowd here at Ninian Park, but a famous moment for a famous old man, Billy Meredith, he's surrounded by his teammates, what an extraordinary story, Manchester City, lead Cardiff City, by. Goal to nil. And when the match was over and I was hurrying back to London, I bid adieu to the 50-year-old wonder. See you at Wembley, said he, his weather-beaten face wreathed in smiles.
2: Said one reporter. Wembley Stadium had just begun to host FA Cup finals and City were into the semi-final of the FA Cup. A victory away from the final, it offered the chance for a fine old end to a fine old career. The idea of Wembley must have been a tantalising one and after his goal at Brighton and his assist at Ninian Park... Ernest Magno was hardly going to drop Meredith for this game. Newcastle United were the opposition and Magno gave Meredith some warm-up games in the league and thus he played his last ever game in the Football League 2 at 49 against Preston North End. In fairness, he didn't touch the ball much. The semi-final of the cup was at St Andrews, not at a packed main road with 75,000 people or a lively 50,000 in Meredith's home country in Cardiff and the game wasn't a very good one it was scrappy and Meredith wasn't as good either it was a disappointment all round Newcastle won 2-0 Meredith again didn't get much of the ball standing on the right touchline for the very last time yeah
6: well um, there's also film of him in 1924 playing his last game I think for Manchester City in the FA Cup and if you look at him he's gaunt and his his, uh, his hair has gone grey and everything but he's slim and he's wiry strong you can see that and that's was was his great strength. He was very strong and fast and, um, and and very skillful.
2: He would later joke about the days when he was isolated in that outside right position on the
4: wing. Yeah, I think he used to tell more sort of funny tales when he was in the um, latter years after the Second World War. He used to be interviewed a lot and he liked to spin these yarns about um, parts of the pitch being sort of complete, you know, you could grow mushrooms on them because nobody actually sort of passed the ball out to the to the wings, et cetera. Um I think he was a good he was a good, um, what's the word, tailed spinner. And, and, and created quite a few of his own legends, if you, if, if you know what I mean.
2: But on that day, it wasn't a jolly tale.
4: Meredith had many
5: idle moments, although he clapped his hands to tell his colleagues that he was still on the field.
2: As John Harding, who you just heard there, says in his biography of Meredith, the fairy tale had ended, and in one of football's strange twists of fates, Meredith had ended his career at City on the losing side against Newcastle, just as he had started it a whole 30 years before. On that day, he had left Chirk at 2am and got home more than a day later. The journey was shorter this time, but the 30 years in between had been quite the career. Just 15 minutes left of this episode now, but if you need to pause and come back later to enjoy the final few sections, this is a good moment to jump out for a bit. When you come back, we'll be talking about Billy Meredith, the pundit, coach, idol, mentor, publican, film star and much more. If you're carrying on listening... Enjoy the final bit. So, we've still got some of Billy's story to tell left in part two of United Three Times episode on Billy Meredith. So, what did Billy do in that period between playing properly for City and then playing in that Cup semi final we just spoke about? Well, he was a reasonably successful publican. He settled into family life and everyone helped out with the pub, which was actually just the bar of the church hotel. The hotel did thrive, even though Billy never drank, smoked, and normally let others be behind the bar while he chatted with his guests, who were more often than not sporting men, journalists, footballers, cricketers, whoever. The hotel was locally known as Meredith's, and it was a family affair. His wife, Ellen, did much of the work. His daughters would help out. They'd always be a member of the wider family coming to visit Meredith's relatives from Cherk or something.
7: You know, Meredith had his own pub and quite often it was, it was sort of nicknamed the footballer's pub because footballers went into that pub and would talk to him. There were actually quite a few pubs in Manchester who was known as the footballers. pub, <laughs> but, but Meredith certainly was, you know, it was, it was Meredith's.
2: He also wrote for newspapers, gave commentary on specific matches or wrote about his memories for one newspaper or another, big and small. And all that time before his final appearance as a player, he was coaching at City, and Ernest Magnol, the remnants of the pre war era of football. Two stalwarts, veterans, champions. And after he stopped playing, he was still enormously famous and more on that in a second but he didn't play up to reporters he was not quite shy in front of press men although at one point in career he did tend to mumble his words when in such a setting but he certainly wasn't the jovial figure he was in the relaxed company of his family and friends he was a prankster always had been always would be even if his former partner in crime sandy turnbull was no longer with him that really was a shame But he got his nephews involved instead, playing football with them, but also training them up to be jokers themselves. Stories go, as per John Harding, that Billy let ponies loose into the barmaid's quarters at his hotel. He also had a parrot to be taught various interesting phrases, none of which made Ellen, his wife, particularly happy. After it had all got too much for this bleating bird, she took it to Bellevue, very near to the Meredith house, and let the parrot go free. Well, let herself get free of that stupid parrot, more like. Billy was none the wiser and, as his nephew recalls, John Harding's book Billy would often walk around the house saying where's that bloody parrot come on Billy get your coat his nephew would say and off they'd go to Bellevue searching for a long lost parrot Billy liked to walk in his semi-retirement the Meredith family learned how to drive but Billy did not he loved the outdoors whether it was a pit in church, a football pitch in Stratford or lost bird chasing in Clayton and he was a famous man he appeared in films he
7: in later life appeared on stage he appeared in films in later life And he was just a major star. One
2: of these films was basically about Meredith. He played himself as a football trainer who helped to train up a young man who had been swindled out of money by his relatives. Meredith was said to have played the role very well and the reviews were good. It was shown in picture houses all over Manchester, many of which Meredith had now bought into with the money he did have investing in Stratford-based cinemas. It was also shown in Chirk, where the locals cheered upon the appearance of local boy Dunger, the hero, of Meredith. And the famous last match in the Cup semi-final meant Billy could get a little extra out of the fans who did adore him. And so more benefit matches were arranged, this time being proper testimonials to mark the end of his long, long career. In April 1925, the biggest of these was played as a Billy Meredith 11 played a combined Rangers and Celtic side. Yeah, a bit strange. It was a 2-2 draw. Meredith's team include a couple of older players, including George Wall, the ex-United winger who played on the opposite side to Meredith so successfully for three major trophies at Manchester United. Wall ran along the line, holding and occasionally puffing on his pipe. Meredith continued to be involved with Wales long after his final game in 1920. He watched every game that he could of his country and would talk to any new player coming through. He loved to give his best wishes and his advice, and they, of course, loved to receive it one of the men who received Billy's chat was Jimmy Murphy the great great man who saved Manchester United in the aftermath of the Munich air disaster
5: I met him in the dressing room at the race course Wrexham in the early 1930s it was my first Welsh and he introduced himself and wished me luck after the war when United played at Wembley Billy loaned me his very old cup final medal to bring us luck
2: Billy also kept coaching at City until 1930 and then became a part scout part coach for Manchester United his frustrations with the board clearly gotten over the minutes of a meeting in September 1931 showed that Meredith had come back, probably to help out the club who were in dire straits in that period. He never did go into proper management, even though he was offered a coaching role in Budapest, where he'd played back in 1908. He didn't want to go abroad. The stone-throwing events of Budapest in 1908 had scarred him. He was frequently spotted in public parks, though, looking for the next best schoolboy, and he'd recommend them to Manchester United or Manchester City or other clubs who employed him. And the truth was, he just couldn't live without football or without being in the spotlight. In the late 1920s, Billy worked with Charlie Roberts, now a very successful businessman, and his own son-in-law, Charlie Pringle, among others, to establish a new football club, Manchester
7: Central. He was a key figure behind a third Manchester club um, I mean, this I could talk about this for hours because it's, a, it's a, <laughs> another long, forgotten story, really. But um, So Meredith was, was very much a, one of the architects of that. And he lived next to the stadium for a while. Um, and he lived in the sort of Galton area of Manchester as well.
2: There are more details on that in part three of our episode on Charlie Roberts. It is a fascinating story.
7: Beyond Manchester Central, Meredith was keen to help and work with any of the football teams. And if you think about it, you know, play people like Alec Bell became a trainer at City. Um Inevitably, whilst he was at Manchester City in the twenties, he'd start to meet some of the young players coming through, um, and he hung around. He coached at the club for a while, so he 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 would have known Matt Busby by the time Busby's making his first sort of, sort of steps at City, and so he would have kept all of those relationships going, which would have meant that by the time Mujacs is, is is becoming established, then, then certainly is part of that fabric of Manchester football. And it was such a small world anyway. You know, there's loads of cases of of um, players sort of living next door to each other or going in each other's pubs and all that sort of thing. <laughs> so, so, you know, the, the players of City United and all the, te- all the, the other teams in, in, in the sort of City area, the, including the non-linked teams, were known to each other and would have, it was a community.
2: And so Billy ticked along. He did some scouting work, some coaching work and he ran his pubs. He was a man enamoured by the sport he played but like many old players, he liked to belittle the achievements of those who succeeded him in the beautiful game. Formations were changing over the late 1920s and so football was changing and the formations partly changed because of a change to the offside rule. The previous rule had been in place since 1866. It said that you were onside if there were three players between you and the goal, or you were behind the ball. Teams began to play the offside trap in the 20s, especially Newcastle, and it made football boring. So the FA changed it to two players. This, in turn, changed formations and eventually led to Herbert Chapman beginning the WM formation to replace the 2-3-5 formation. For more on this kind of thing, I recommend you read Jonathan Wilson's Inverting the Pyramid book. Anyway, formations were changing, and so new positions were being invented, old ones discarded, and play was less brutal than it had been in the past. All players do it. Meredith, Graham, Soonis, whoever. And Meredith was happy to comment on the failings of modern football, and he did so through his pub. If it wasn't him writing for himself for a newspaper, it was a journalist standing at his bar in the Stretford Road Hotel asking Billy for his opinions, and he would let fly. Meredith especially felt that the new football placed too much emphasis on speed, something he had never based his game on, hence the 30-year career.
5: The clever individual player is being crushed out to make way for the man who has less football craft, but is credited with going full speed ahead for goal.
2: Wingers became less like Meredith, men with excellent ball control, and more like Andrei Kanchelskis, direct, speed, goals, assists. In 1933, Billy's wife Ellen passed away. He was a widower now, without any intention of remarrying. Football was his partner and always would be. And so he continued to run his pub, the Football Pub, and did so throughout the Second World War. One story goes that during the Manchester Blitz, a bomb exploded at the back of the pub and a shower of Welsh international caps descended on the neighbourhood. The locals scrambled around trying to pick them up, all 48 of them. The thing with Billy, as I've said, is that he just couldn't stop being a football man. It was his world and he couldn't survive in any other. And fortunately enough for him, he was famous enough and good enough that he was allowed to be the football man right up until his death. Charlie Roberts became a businessman, so did Harold House and Herbert Burgess. George Wall worked in the Manchester docks. Many football men had become publicans, partly because John Henry Davies kept giving them pubs to manage. But Billy retired from his Stretford Road pub in 1945 and went to live with his daughter Winnie, a dance champion who ran an evening dance class at Withington Baths. Billy would occasionally go down and chat to the people he knew there. Most of his old football mates had passed away already. Charlie Roberts had done so in 1939, Ernest Magnol earlier, Davies too, and many others.
7: I think he probably still craved a national sort of position of some sort. I mean, nowadays, you know, he'd have been one of those voices on on Sky Sports or something. You know, he'd have been there every Saturday um, or or whatever, but but back then there was no outlet. I mean, he did newspaper columns and, and things like that, but... That was it, really,
4: you know. So, and he 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 did struggle for money at times. There was a piece of a recording of him in the forties that I had, which uh, is with um, the Manchester United Museum, uh, where he's he's being interviewed on a on a sort of radio um, quiz show, uh, and he makes a few. Sort of sardonic comments about football in the past, as against today, and gets a few cheers. So I think that was part of his, par- his, his character. At the, uh, you know, towards the end, he used to he used to love talking about the game, but not in a realistic way. It was just almost in a cartoonish sort of fashion.
2: And so he got involved with the new crowd. The Welshmen who he wished good luck to on their debuts never forgot it. The players he coached at United and City wouldn't forget either. And the Welsh FA were happy to indulge him. Everyone was. He could go to any football ground in the country and be given the. V- VIP treatment, just as he would have liked. But really, he missed the dressing room. It's no wonder he played up until he was fifty. I wouldn't normally read a whole chunk from a book, but John Harding's biography on Billy really is excellent, and this bit in particular. He was now the grand old man of football, a permanent VIP. There were always seats for him at all the big games, although he was never happier. Than when allowed to settle in the corner of the dressing room unobserved. He had little to say on such occasions, but would simply sit with his hands deep in his pockets, chewing on his toothpick, totally absorbed in the hustle and bustle of pre match preparations. At such times, a stranger attempting to strike up a conversation was usually doomed to failure.
7: I've interviewed his grandson and I managed to interview, well, briefly interview his daughter, who was 99 when I interviewed her. She died about a year or so later. Um, And she said that. It was just football. That's all. He, he, football was everything to him, and he didn't want he didn't want to do anything else. He didn't want to talk about anything else or do anything else. He just wanted to be involved in football. <laughs> and it, it's a real shame that neither City nor United could find him a role because they just the clubs just didn't have a role. You know, they, they didn't have a, 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 a football president or the mm. direct football or, ambassador. Or even somebody going around the hospitality suites. You know, we didn't have anything like that. And it's a real shame because how great would it have been for him to still be walking around the corridors of of Old Trafford or or, or Main Road for that matter in in 1957 and and him him giving advice to the Busby Babes and so on. But
2: Meredith did criticise much of the modern game, but he had never not criticised the game. Even when he was a player himself, that's just the way he was. And he did want to help people improve,
3: and in fact, he was very friendly with the Busby Babes team pre-Munich. Pre- and, and, and not long before the, the, the Munich disaster, um, you know, Tommy Taylor, Duncan Edwards, used to visit him quite regularly, you know, asking for his advice and, and,
2: and guidance. It's a lovely image. Of course, Jimmy Murphy would have sent them. To Murphy, Meredith was no doubt a hero, a great Welshman and one who had been kind to Murphy in the 30s when he was a player. And now Murphy was building up the Babes. He would send them over to Meredith for a chat. And they would absorb it all, of course. They were great players. Another story from John Harding's book.
5: George Williams, who, like Meredith, lived in Withington in the late 1950s, remembers a typical incident. After watching Williams play in a junior match one morning, Meredith asked for the boys' right football boot. The next day it was returned with a ball attached to the boot's toe by a cord some two feet long. Meredith had noticed a slight weakness in Williams' right foot and suggested he dribble the ball wherever he went, never letting the string tighten.
2: Those were the things that gave Billy Meredith great joy in his final years, chatting to young men, just making it as footballers, helping them out. He had no money left, of course. He never had been rich and he never would be. And he died with barely a
7: penny. For the rest of his life, he continues to say, well, either United didn't pay me for that, or City didn't pay me for that, or... (laughs) And it, and it carries on. But it never damages his relationship with the fans, whether it's the United fans or City fans. They still idolised him and continued to idolise him. And he went to as many of the um, cup finals for City or United as he could. I mean, to be honest, for, for United, it was just the, the, um, the one in the 40s um, because he was too ill in 57 to go yeah. to, to the cup player. Um, but he went to Cities in 56 and 55, and he went to ones in the 30s for City as well.
2: He died only a couple of months after he'd seen the boys he chatted to from Manchester United die. The Munich Air disaster had sent Manchester into mourning in 1958. The streets were silent, whole families cried around their radios. With the country focused on the extraordinary ability of United to recover under the direction of Jimmy Murphy, Billy Meredith passed away, and he lay in an unmarked grave for almost half a century. For a man of such great, great achievements, his death and the unmarked grave is a sad matter. His final years, well, his whole life really, were lived in a manner that they should not have been. He may have drawn fame in newspapers, on stage, wherever, but for football's first superstar he was never able to settle. He always had something to fight. That was partly his character, no doubt, but also the way football was then.
7: By far, the most important um, figure connecting with both Manchester teams, really, uh, you know, for what he's achieved at both teams, Meredith was the first to do it for both clubs and basically made both those clubs, through, through his playing, made both those clubs attractive clubs to watch, popular clubs and clubs that well, became established as, as part of, you know, the sort of eye in football.
4: Yeah, it was a long time ago when I wrote the book so 1985 so when he originally wrote Ronaldo was probably was he born then? I don't know Um, no I used to liken him to George Best in the sense that he was a global superstar in the sense that he was probably the most famous footballer um, in the world uh, you could say for many years back in the 40s I think they used to compare him to to Matthews who was the greater player Meredith or Matthews so he was on that level um, and he had um, charisma and he was uh, An attractive player to look at. Um, One of the things that first drew me to to, to doing a book about him was um, all the images that had been made of him. The cartoonists sort of loved him. Um, uh, And so in that sense, he was um, recognizable when footballers probably weren't. You know, if you went along to a match in 1911, you probably wouldn't expect to, to recognize too many players. Um, uh, but, but Meredith was instantly recognisable, which made him very unusual, I would
2: think, at that time. What an incredible man, though. From a mining boy in Chirk through two world wars, dragging Manchester's two biggest clubs to their first trophies, starting a union, starting a football club, running a pub, appearing on stage in a film, scouting the next generation, coaching the next stars, attending meetings, watching Wales. He did it all. There's no way I can truly sum up Billy Meredith's lives into a final little epitaph, so I'll let you do that yourselves. What a remarkable life that's all we have time for on this episode of United Through Time thank you as always for listening my first thanks goes to John Harding for his book the information it offers and of course for his time in talking to me I must also thank my many other guests for their time Gary James who has always helped the podcast you can read and buy his book the emergence of footballing cultures in Manchester Mark Metcalf another who has always helped the podcast his book is the Manchester United House in years 1907 to 1911 thank you as well to Colin Savage a City fan and writer for King of the Kipak who so you can find on Twitter at press blue and thank you to Gwyn Jenkins author of The Manchester United Welsh thanks also to Richard Butler Paddy Barkley and Ian Gardner all of whom have spoken to the podcast before and whose voices are used in this podcast thank you to our patrons who help support this podcast continue that thank you goes to Kyle and Jacob and thank you for listening to support the podcast go to unitedthroughtime.com forward slash support and if you don't want to or can't support us by donating money you can do it easily just by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or sharing it on Twitter. It honestly does help quite a lot. My final note, if you've enjoyed this and you want to see Billy Meredith in action, type into Google Billy Meredith BFI player.
1: There's a clip from 1912 of him storming down the wing. Enjoy. Bye for now.